But that's from the second one, which was really bad. I mean, we gotta be honest. It was so dumb. Uh, it's like, well, it's like the, zoo, the Zoolanders, the second Zoolander movie was just really bad. Don't waste your time. It was in theaters for like four days. I, I adored the first Zoolander. It's, it's such a great movie, and the second one is just crap. Although there was a, there was a, there's a scene where... Ben, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch plays a hermaphrodite model named All. And like the way that he looks, it's amazing. Like they shaved his eyebrows. It's incredible. But anyway, it's that scene alone kind of makes the movie for me. But but the rest of the movie was just bad. Yeah. Oh, all right, people. Here we go. Let's pray. Ah, yes, Lord. Abba, Father, arrest our attention. Open up our ears, soften our hearts, turn us, Lord, so we can hear you. Just pray that your word would be laid open for us. A buffet of glory, (laughs) Lord, that we can enjoy this morning. Just pray that we would leave this time in your word with Deep soul satisfaction. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 4. We are once again going to attempt to knock out an entire chapter in one sitting. Now I have to say, starting with Romans 5, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are... Just mind-blowingly good and rich. And I don't know how fast we're going to be able to go through them because they're just, they're gold mines. And you don't, you know, you want to, you want to get down to the bottom and get every last, you know, nugget out of the gold mine. So I don't know. But this one, I think we should be able to get through this whole chapter today. So, we're actually going to be spending most of the day talking about Abraham. Abraham is one of the most fascinating people in Scripture. I, there are there's three guys in Scripture that really fascinate me, and, and the reason they fascinate me is because they provoke me to jealousy. There is something about the way that they connected with God that is special, different. Um, And it's Abraham, Moses, and David. And these three men, all three of them were, uh, because of their relationship with God, they shifted the way that all future generations had relationships with God. 
Okay. Abraham is still, the Apostle Paul calls him the father of us all, the father of faith, which in this chapter, read that. Something about Abraham's faith and the way that Abraham connected with, spoke to, related with God, that changed the way that humankind connected with God from that point forward. And we know the truth is that God does not change. But can it be that one person can, like, take the entire race to the next level of connection with God? I mean, is that even possible? But it seems to be what happens both with Abraham and with Moses and with David that these three guys all just kind of totally changed the way that the human race looked at the God of all creation. And I am deeply provoked by that. I don't know if you guys, I mean, I'm like, I want that. I'm not interested in a run-of-the-mill relationship with God. I want the kind of relationship with God that, like, shifts everyone in my sphere and beyond and kind of lifts them to another place. Does that make sense? You know, I mean, and, and not because I'm, like, I, like, think of myself as a, you know, like, special person. And we know Abraham and we know Moses and we know David, and these men were not anything approaching perfect. Okay? Abraham was, you know, probably the least sinful of these, of these three. Uh, he, you know, he, he made a couple mistakes here and there where he was afraid, so he told somebody that his wife was actually his sister, and so, you know, just because he was worried they were going to kill him in order to get her, and and that kind of thing happened, but there's no real outlandish sin in Abraham's life that we're like, whoa. But then think about Moses. Moses killed a guy. I mean, he got ticked off and he killed a guy. I mean, that's – Moses was a murderer, all right? And and not only that, I mean, he broke the covenant a couple of different times later on. God almost killed Moses because he hadn't uh, circumcised his kids. That's a bad day. When you wake up in the middle of the night and the angel of the Lord is standing over you with a sword like, ah, okay, let's see, that's just not, that's that's a bad day, right? I mean, it's not good, okay? But that Moses experienced that. And David's the worst of them all. You know, he had a real problem with women. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, he was a man of blood, okay? Uh, killing was a part of his life. Now, some of that was in like the context of war, but some of that was also not so much. I mean, he killed Uriah just to steal his wife, Bathsheba. And truth is, he killed Uriah just just to avoid being getting in trouble for sleeping with someone else's wife. Okay, and anyway, so these men were not, but each of them had such a relationship with God that there were things manifested in their life and in their day which would not be seen again, some of them ever. David expanded the borders of Israel to the point, to to the limits of what God had promised to Abraham. After that, they shrunk. Even with Solomon, those borders shrunk. And 
they have never, ever been expanded to the point where David had had them since David. Okay, David was living in the full manifestation of the promise of God to his father Abraham, and no one else has ever done that. Okay, so there, I mean, it's just stuff like that. Plus, David had a deep and and joyful understanding of uh, this that we're going to talk about today, which is um, uh, justification by faith. He got it. He prophetically saw through to the covenant which was going to be made through Jesus and was singing about it thousands of years before Jesus ever even came. Okay, so these are men who, they just seem to step to higher levels. And so I'm fascinated by them. Anyway, that was kind of a, but, uh, but, but we're going to spend this entire chapter talking about Abraham. So verse one, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh has found? Okay, now let's kind of back up. I know it's been a few weeks. So in Romans chapter one, two, and three, we have been, we've kind of been holding Jew and Gentile separate from one another and saying, listen, guys, no one's better than anybody else. Mostly been, we've been talking to the Jewish side saying, I, we know you guys grew up in this, but that does not make you better than the Gentiles. You both enter into this thing by faith. And the way that he's going to connect both Jew and Gentile is he's going to use the only person in the history of the world who was both Jew and Gentile. Abraham. He was Gentile before he was Jew. Because he became Jewish. He was the first person to become a Hebrew. When God made a covenant with him that created what it meant to be Hebrew. Okay, so Abraham was not Hebrew, and then he became Hebrew. So he was both so what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? So this is kind of Paul's masterstroke saying, listen, you can't, because all the Jews would point back to Abraham and say, we descend from him, therefore we are better than you. And Paul's going, hold on. So first he connects the Jews and the Gentiles through sin. Okay. You all sinned. Nobody's better than one another, than, than each other. Okay, you, you, you're all you're all messed up. Nobody, there's nobody that can say to anybody else, "I'm better than you," because you're all connected because you all, you've all sinned. And now he connects him via faith, and he goes back to Abraham, the father of all the Jews, and reveals him to be a man of faith and not works. Verse two: For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. We're living in this place where no human being gets to stand up and say, I am better than any other human being because we've all sinned. But if Abraham, this guy that we look back to, if he could honestly do that, then Paul's going, well, then we're all screwed. Because if one person could do it, that means all of us should be able to do it. Are you with me on this? Jesus being the only exception. And there's, you know, reason to understand that Jesus was different than the rest of us. So no part of salvation can glorify man. We need to understand this. You were just talking about this. Where God is so jealous of his own glory. 
that he refuses to allow anyone to glorify themselves above him. We're going to get much deeper in this as we move further in this book. But the the reality of, of it is this. If someone could claim to have met the perfect like standard that is God's standard, then they can claim to be as glorious as God. Yes or no? Right? And so their salvation would be to whose credit? Their own. Precisely. If you had worked if you had worked so hard and been, you know, I I am perfect, I have never made a mistake, then you could stand up and say, guess what? I have saved myself. And God I'm sure he would love to see that happen, but it's not going to. Because it's not going to, he's not going to create a system in which a man can elevate himself and save himself. He wants everyone to be saved by him. Therefore, who receives the glory? God. We'll talk at some point about why that's the best news anybody ever heard. That God is jealous for his own glory and that God will magnify his own glory no matter what at all times. That is the greatest, most delicious news in the history of the human race. It's beautiful. We don't have a lot of time to talk about it right now. But no man can say that he's better than any other and nobody receives the glory except for God from salvation. Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay. He is quoting from Genesis 15. And here's what I'll read that to you. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay. This is the promise that God makes to Abraham. He says, look then towards the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And it says that Abraham looked to the stars and believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, so it's this moment where Abraham becomes a truly righteous man because he believed what God was saying to him. Not because of works that Abraham did, not because of it, but he he, there was this moment, this faith transaction that took place where God makes a promise to Abraham. Abraham believes it. And in that moment, righteousness is credited to him because of his faith. Not because of his works, not because of anything else. But he believed that God was a God who could do the impossible. He believed that God was a God who... who would not go back on his promises. And he stood in this place and said, I believe you. And in that moment, he received the righteousness of Christ. Believe it or not, that's what he received. He was looking forward to Jesus on the cross, even though he had no clue. It was very murky. It was He, he couldn't see exactly what God was going to do, but he knew that God was going to do it. And that God was going to save him and give him a son and fulfill every promise that he had made. God was going to do what he promised he would do. And in that moment, he received righteousness because of it. Now, I, I, I'm going to read something to you from something I wrote a while ago. But it says, God comes to Abraham. This, it's, we need to understand where we are in the story. Okay, so 
Years before this, God came to Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land. And through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's what God promises to Abraham. I'm going to give you the land. Through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so this this double promise. And Abraham has been living in that promise. And he's been believing that that promise means that he's going to have kids after all. Because he hasn't had any yet. And they're pretty old. Even when God made him this promise, they were pretty old. That he's going to have children and that they're going to be blessed and he's going to, you know, whatever. And God says, I'm going to give you this land as well. And that, that land being the promised land, Israel. Okay. And Abraham has been living in that promise for a while. He's been walking it out, but still no kids. They've had no children. And Abraham has just right before this, he has walked through this, this uh, moment where Lot got in trouble Lot is Abraham's nephew, and he's just kind of the bane of Abraham's existence, okay? I mean, Lot's constantly screwing Abraham over because he's just, you know, he's like he's like the Bible's millennial. Like, you know, he just has to have, you know, he just has to have his big uncle Abe come in and save his butt all the time because I don't know how to do it, right? Okay, I'm not saying you guys are that way. I'm just using that phrase because I thought you would understand it. <clears throat> I honestly have never met – I've met like two millennials that are actually anything close to what like people say millennials are. That's just the truth. But whatever. Anyway, he's a wimp and he doesn't know how to take care of himself and he keeps getting himself in trouble because he's an idiot. He takes more than he should. You know, Abraham has been protecting him, keeping him safe. And Lot's, you know, kind of doing his thing. And then Abraham says, I'll tell you what, because Lot, Lot's shepherds and Abraham's shepherds couldn't get along. So uh, Abraham says, tell you what, Lot, we'll just split up the, the area. You go. But, and, and Abraham did the, the, the good thing and said, I'll let you pick first, wherever you want to go. So Lot looks at the land and picks like the richest part of the land and says, I want that over there. Just an ungrateful little punk is what he is. Just completely entitled. Just you just want to punch Lot. Just just go ahead. Just go read Genesis. I mean, you just you just like Lot. You're a jerk. Anyway, so yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Lot's gotten himself in trouble. These guys from Sodom and Gomorrah um, and other. And other uh, cities. This is before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, by the way. Obviously, these the the kings of that region have attacked Lot and several others, and have kidnapped them, and have uh, stolen all their stuff, and they have taken them off to sell the men as slaves and to keep the women for their like you know concubines. Okay, that's that's what's happened. So Abraham connects with one of the other rulers in the region. And he says, here's what we're going to do, guys. <clears throat> we're going to go in there. We're going to take these guys out. So Abraham goes in there, leads the battle, defeats the enemy, like kicks these guys' butts, saves everybody's uh, people out of slavery, and then comes back. And the king is like, look, you, you really saved us here, Abraham. So here's what you can keep all the treasure. We just want our people back. And Abraham looks at the guy, and this is one of those moments where I'm like, Abraham, you are amazing. He looks at the guy and says, no, no, take your stuff. Because nobody gets to say they made Abraham rich except for God. 
Now think about that for a minute. It's like somebody saying, here's your million dollar check. And you're going, you know what? Nobody gets to say that they made me rich except for God. I mean, that's really what's going on here. Abraham could have said, well, this is God blessing me. Thank you very much. That's exactly what I was thinking. Okay. <laughs> but that's not what happened. Abraham saw through to what was really going on was this man wanted a measure of control over Abraham. And Abraham was saying, no, no, no. I will get rich only by the blessing of God. So take back your stuff. That's what's just happened. Okay. And at this point, God has still not given Abraham any kids. Remember that this promise that God made to Abraham a long time before this has still not been fulfilled. He's living in the waiting. And he still said to this other king, no, God's the only one that gets to make me rich. I mean, that's massive. Okay, so that night he goes back to his tent. He's chilling out and God comes to talk to him. And this and God says to him, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. He's saying, you chose me and not all that stuff. And I understand that. That's what God says to Abraham. And then, so Abraham looks at him. Now, I love what happens here. I love watching the heart of God at work because God knows how to, how to stir the human heart. He knows how to get us to where he wants us to be. He's really good at it. Okay? And this is what he does. Okay? He uses this promise, I am your shield, your very great reward, to stir Abraham to request. God wants Abram to ask for a son. It's not, his name isn't Abraham yet, by the way. It's just Abram. God wants Abram to ask for a son. A son has not been promised to him. It's just been implied. It's real. Sorry, I just thought that was funny. It's just been implied. It has never been promised to him. And God is stirring Abraham to believe him for a son. Okay? God is, God is setting him up. I love this. There's a reflection of this. God does this in several different places. Okay? He did it with Adam. Here's Adam by himself in the garden. And, and God says to himself, hmm, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, he says that. It's not good for the man to be alone. But he doesn't immediately create Eve. What's the next thing God does? He like, looks at all the animals and stuff for a suitable helper. No, he has Adam look. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. He says, Adam, I want Adam, here's what we're gonna do today. I want you to name all the animals. And Adam's like, okay, great, let's do it, you know? Adam does not know about this conversation that's gone inside the Godhead of the man needs to not be alone. Adam doesn't know about that. So God comes to Adam and says, I want you to name the animals. So Adam starts naming the animals, and God keeps bringing him a male and female lion. Oh, we'll call them a lion. Male and female horse. Oh, we'll call them a horse. Male and female dog. We'll call them dog, okay? So, and Adam, but Adam begins to notice a pattern. I wonder, how many, I wonder how many pairs it took for Adam to go, hmm. Like, they're the same <laughs> and yet different. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, yes. yeah, okay. And Adam's like, all of a sudden, something begins to stir in Adam's heart. Hmm. Yeah. But really, though, like, whenever he was naming these animals, mm. do you think, uh, like, he didn't, they didn't really have a language. He probably just, like, spoke to God and, I don't know, so, like, why do you think they didn't have a language? I don't know. It just they didn't, he didn't have anybody to talk to besides God. And <laughs> I mean, what do you think they spoke? 
I don't know. Or do you think he just like? I mean, the Jews would the Jews would say he spoke Hebrew, although I don't think that's true. But God would sink back to him. Americans are Americans. They spoke. God has been speaking. Do you think that when when the Bible says that God said, "Let there be light," that it doesn't mean it? Yeah, I guess. God had a language he was using. Okay? We don't know what that language was. And what, but I'm, we're assuming that whatever language that was is the language Adam also is speaking at this time. Yeah, I just thought it would be funny if, like, since you, if you didn't have anybody to talk to, you didn't really know what to say. So, like, here's this ostrich coming up. Let's name this <laughs> and we have no idea. We don't know what, what Adam actually named these animals. We have no idea. The only question I have other than that is, you know, God is talking to him. And, you know, is God like kind of like whispering to Adam? Like, Adam's like, go ahead and name these animals. He's like, hmm, what does it look like? It looks like a lion dog. Yeah, you're right. It looks like a lion. I, I, personally, I personally think that this was hilarious fun for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because I've watched my children do this. Okay? Well, what do you think we should do about that? And they come up with these brilliant ideas that you're like, that is awesome. You know, it just makes you laugh because, you know, you just begin to see how their mind works. And I think that's what – I think that's part of what was going on here. I think – that, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, just, you know, they bring an animal to Adam, and they're like, what are you going to call this one? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Adam's like, let's call it a dog, Daddy. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> dog it is. Next, you know, and it's just like, he was enjoying Adam's creativity. Have you ever thought about this? Like, that's a lot of animals. God gave <laughs> creativity to the human heart, yeah. No, I'm sure he named dinosaurs. <laughs> they, did, they didn't name them what we call them, you know. But yes, as far as you know, we don't know exactly how this whole thing went. But you know, apparently, this is what he did. I want you. I want you. You know, you think about it. But check this out, guys. We are still naming the animals, folks. We're still doing this. When we discover a new species, we yeah. still name it. This is still something we're doing. We're still about the process of discovery that God put into our hearts well, at the very God. earliest point of who we were. This is we're still doing that. Yeah. So when God think, comes, into like domesticated way back then. I don't know. Probably I, not. I totally think apparently, well, apparently Adam exercised some level of authority over animals that we do not don't yet understand because, and and plus he apparently. Apparently it was not you, – you, you don't – Eve, when the serpent starts speaking to Eve, Eve does not go, a talking animal. So you must assume <laughs> that the animals and, and Adam and Eve had communication on a semi-regular basis. Now, I'm not saying that animals were more intelligent than they are now. <clears throat> okay, but it's not – Or people are just so stupid that animals don't want to talk to us. You know, it's just like, no, I, I honestly think that or we have, confusion we things. have lost some level of our, of our, of the authority that God gave us in the first place. And so we no longer have that intrinsic understanding of, of animal communication and behavior that we would have had in the beginning. We, we lost a lot in the fall. Well, you can speak to animals now and we still do. Do we not? We, we still we still rule over animals. We still speak and communicate with animals, but it's not as fluid as it obviously was back then because a talking serpent was not a surprise to Eve. You know what I mean? That, that's, you would think. 
that would be the first thing she said was, when did you start talking? <laughs> yeah. I just want to like, you talk about God's pattern, like how he does this a lot. Like yes. In the first couple chapters of Genesis, I can't help but notice like the theme of paradox consistently. Like God says, let there be light. But then he creates, but then afterwards, like a couple days later, then he creates the stars and the sun. God said, "Be fruitful and multiply." Telling God, Adam to have he doesn't tell Adam to he doesn't tell Adam to be fruitful and multiply until after he creates Eve. I know what you're going to look at, and there are two, there are two places because before Eve ever comes on the scene, it says God created man and woman and put them in the garden. There's two stories of creation. There's the shortened story, which is first. And then there's the elongated story, which gives us more of the actual, like, what happened. And plus, there's reason to believe that the shortened story is really just kind of a poetic retelling of creation and not, not an exact representation of – the, the early Jews would not have said, no, that happened on the third day, not the fourth day, because it's not – that's not the point. <laughs> that's not why it's written that way. Which is why some scholars look into the creation account and say there's room for a God-guided evolution that lasted longer than seven days because the seven-day number comes from this poetic account and not from the account which goes in order. Now, I don't know, I don't know what to think about that, to be honest. I want to say let's just leave it shrouded in mystery and just let's live in the place where we understand God did all this and that's all I really care about. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> I don't care how he did it. That's not important to me. And was it seven days or was it not seven days? Why do I care? How long is it's, a day? It's not important. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like if God decided to guide creation through a process which was much longer and much more detailed, which, you know, whatever, fine. But did, does this make sense to you guys? Am I totally messing with your heads right now? I hope not. Okay, because we're getting off the beaten path here. Yeah. Um, but God, do you see how God created in Adam's heart a desire before he met the desire? Yeah. Adam j didn't, I mean, God didn't just bring Eve into the garden one day and say, here you go. <laughs> That's not what happened. God began to create an expectation in Adam's heart, a desire in Adam's heart, to see he was, and Adam saw, wait a minute, every single one of these other animals have a companion that's created for them, that they live with, that they do life with, that, that matches them in some way, except for me. I don't have that. And God and Adam have that conversation. I don't have a suitable companion. And God was like, I know. Sleep. Well, Adam wouldn't have even known how to express. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way Adam could have understood what he wanted God to create for him. Because he had never seen a human female. So it's like, all he knew was, <laughs> counterpart, 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 counterpart. Male, female, male, female, male, female, everywhere in the animal kingdom. And yet here I am by myself. Help me understand that. And God's like, I will sleep. Okay? And God creates Eve. 
But he didn't create. (laughs) All of a sudden, he wakes up, and there she is in all of her glory, and he's like, Shazam! (laughs) Well, he immediately understood that here in front of him was what he'd been missing. That, it, it, it just, what no other animal could be for him, companion. This is so far beyond sex, it's not even funny. What no other animal could be for him in regards to the companion of his life was there. And that we don't know for sure this. But I believe that Adam had such a clear understanding of God, his father, that he even saw in God that there was relationship going on there. And, and like with like. And he didn't have that. He was the only being in the universe that was alone. And it created this desire in his heart. God did that on purpose so that God could then satisfy that desire and prove to Adam once again, there's nothing that you need that I can't give you. Okay. Now God's doing this in Abraham, Abram, not Abraham yet, Abram. He has, he comes to Abram. He's let Abram sit in this promise for a long time. And Abram has been thinking the whole time, well, God's obviously going to give me a kid. It's obviously going to happen. Okay, it has to for God's promises to be kept true. So where is it? And he's been sitting in this promise, in this desire for a long time. And then he brings it to this point of crisis where Abram's like, I just laid it all out on the table for you, God, and I feel like I've lost it because doesn't I said I don't want all that all those riches, but if I die today, everything I have is gonna to go to my servant and not my son. And I'm not okay with that. So God sets Abram up to ask the question. Okay. So I believe this was another test of Abram's knowledge of God's character. God was almost saying, Will Abram be bold enough? And have enough faith to ask me for even this. Does Abram know me to be that generous? Does he know that I'm the one that can meet all of his needs? You see where he's living? You see this place? Okay. Abram was bold enough to ask. And God seriously responded. Abram's like, I don't have a son. And God says, come outside with me. And Abram looks, he says, now look at the stars. Abram looks at the stars. Now this was a night sky that had never seen light pollution from any city ever. They didn't have any kind of electric light. So this was a starry sky unlike anything we've ever seen. Okay, I mean, <gasps> and here it is over his head, and God says, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as as righteousness. It was this moment that Abram was counted righteous. Faith rose up in Abram's heart in response to the promise of God, and grace was released. Grace that changed the course of human history. God and Abram then go through a ritual of covenant sacrifice that binds Abram and God together in this purpose. 
Abram is given a vision of the captivity captivity of his offspring in Egypt and God's promise that they will be delivered. This one moment of faith unleashed a promise of children, a promise of inheritance of the land, a moment of prophetic revelation and the deliverance of his offspring 400 years in the future. Moses was called forth as a deliverer here in this moment of Abraham's faith, of agreement with faith in the promise of God. Abram looked into the heart of Father God. He saw the promise. He believed it. And out of this moment, he and all his generations and eventually all the families on the earth received it. You see what happened in this moment? This moment of faith unlocked what we know of as human history. This simple moment where God guided Abram to the place and then asked him the question, can you believe that I'm going to give you what I said I was going to give you? Abraham could have said no. He could have said, you know what, I'm I'm just going to go find some other woman. I'm going to make this happen myself. But he didn't. Not here anyway. And in this moment, this like alignment of the stars, okay, this incredible thing gets unlocked all the way through to Moses, all the way through to Jesus, all the way through to you. Abram's faith opened this corridor for us in that moment. And we're talking about it in Romans chapter four. How many promises are hidden in the heart of Abba that we have not loved him enough or known him enough to see? How many things are kept in his generous heart because we have not looked past our insecurities and our failures and into his gracious and loving soul and believed that he just might be better than we thought he was? John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him he has sent. You see what faith does? Faith exchanges my capabilities for God's capabilities. Faith exchanges my understanding for God's understanding. Faith hands over my plans for his. That's awesome. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but it is what he is due. When you go to work and you clock in, and then you later on you clock out, your employer, by law, has to pay you for that time. Right? It would not be fair or righteous in any way for him to withhold those wages from you. You worked for them. You earned them. Okay? We all understand that. Every single one of us. And if God operated salvation that way, we would all be screwed royally. Because we can't meet his standard. We just can't. It's not possible for a human soul to actually meet the standard God set out, which is his own perfection. If you earned your salvation, you'd receive the glory. It's what you were due. Verse 4. But to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. This isn't about the holy time card. This is about believing in the one who looks at someone who is honestly ungodly, nothing like God in the way that I was created to be, who looks at somebody like me, full of sin, full of contradiction, and God says to me, I will provide for you and I will make you holy. I will give you righteousness as a gift. My job then is just to receive it. I have to believe to receive. You can't, it is not possible to receive something that you don't believe exists. Imagine someone hands me a lottery ticket and it's the winning lottery ticket and they tell me so. This is the winning Powerball ticket, $300 million. There you go. If I don't believe them and I throw it in the trash, do I receive the money anyway? No, I don't. I don't receive the money. But if I believe what they say and I go to the whatever, I don't know, I don't even know what happens. I don't know how you do this. You know, sure, the gas station. And I walk up to Habib behind them, you know. I'm like, I have the winning lottery ticket, okay? Then all of a sudden, I'm going to get the money. It's going to come to me, the money that comes from this ticket that I did not buy, that was given to me. I'm going to receive it. Why? Because I believed the person who gave it to me. And I'm acting on that belief. You've got this $300 million in the safe under the thing, right? I mean, <laughs> Are you with me in this? I didn't earn that money. I'm just receiving it. But I have to receive it. Have you ever tried to give someone something they don't want? Yes. It's difficult, isn't it? Exactly. And even then, they aren't going to receive it. It's going to like, you know, throw it at them, it bounces off their chest and it lands on the ground and they don't receive it. There's nothing you can do. That's why the guys that have to serve people lawsuits always have to like dress up like, you know. You've been served. You've, here you go. You've been served. No! Right? Okay. You, ever, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay to the one who does not work you cannot earn salvation please hear this because we try it all the time you can't earn this it's not possible but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. I, what a title for the Lord. I, I, I talk to God. I love finding new names for God that just kind of stir my heart and my imagination. This is one that I've been enjoying lately. Oh, justifier of the ungodly. Thank you. I, that is good news that he is just fire of the ungodly because I'm ungodly. That's me. He's my justifier. I put my trust in him. I do not attempt to add anything. I simply receive his justification. Okay. Do I have any? Do I have Bible quizzers in, in the room? 
Justification. What does it mean? It's been a while since I've done ten pointers. I was like peewee. So you should forget what it means? <laughs> what does it mean? Come on. Those are the application questions. I'm deeply disappointed in you. Sorry. <laughs> I remember what it means. It's been a lot longer for me. Spawny is written down right here. Means that it is means that it is just as if you never sinned. That's what justification means. It's just as if you never sinned. That's that's what it means. God has made it just as if you never sinned. You are no longer guilty. You cannot and no one can call you guilty because you've been justified. That brings a whole is that amazing or what? That means when the enemy comes along and says, you dirty, filthy, blah, 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 blah. I know exactly what you did. You just look at him and go, no, no, no. Sorry. It's just as if I never said. You can kiss my booty because you can't accuse me. I've been justified. That's good news, guys. You got to live in justification because this part, this is the part of salvation that happens instantly upon your believing is justification. The minute you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, justification, boom, instantaneous. All of a sudden it goes from, I'm an incredibly guilty person to I am innocent. That is unbelievable. Maybe you guys just haven't sinned as much as I have. <laughs> I mean, Jesus said it. He that is forgiven much loves much. And he's been, been forgiven little loves little because I, I happen to know how many, how often I've sinned. I happen to know how, how large a debt has been repaid for me. So it gets a little bit exciting to me when I get the credit card statement that says you owe nothing. Amen. Okay. That makes me go, <laughs> I mean, come on now. That is amazing. I remember I had a, I don't remember what it was. I think it was a student loan and, but it wasn't like, this is before the government took all, took over all the student loans. And so you had to get student loans from banks. And I had this one bank that would just kept ratcheting up the interest rate on this one student loan. And I was just like, this is insane. I can't, I can't continue to pay this. It was ridiculous. And my grandfather heard about it and sent me a check for the full amount for the student loan so I could just pay it off. And I remember that day just going, <laughs> it was so great. It was just like freedom, right? I'm going to go buy myself a car or something because I, I want to stay in debt, you know? Yeah. No, it was just this like weight. It was just like, oh. It's like when you pay off your master's commission fees. It's an amazing feeling. <laughs> Trust me, I know all about it, friends. I did I did it myself. All right. Justification. Faith gives us innocence. <laughs> we are guiltless. And nobody can say we're guilty because we're not. That's beautiful. I'm sorry, but that's just gorgeous. There's nothing better than that. And it goes to the one who does not work, but the one that believes in the, that God is the justifier of the ungodly. It doesn't come to me because I worked really hard, I kicked my own butt, and I finally get to the place where God's going to forgive me. No! No! 
you know, the Jewish understanding of righteousness says if your good deeds outweigh your bad, that you're going to be okay. That's the Jewish understanding of righteousness, which is why hardcore Jews are always looking for good deeds to do. They call them mitzvahs. They're always looking for those. Yes. You know what that word means? No, I was about to ask. It means the son of good deeds. That's what it means. And that's when, when you're bar mitzvahed, you become a, a child of the book, a man of the law. And all of a sudden you need to find a lot of mitzvahs because your good deeds need to outweigh your bad. It's heavy. I mean, it's a heavy burden. You think about anytime you do anything wrong, you're like, oh man, how many good things am I going to have to do to make up for that? That sucks, doesn't it? That's not good news. That'd be terrible. That is not good news. That is bad news. <laughs> that is just bad news. That's why it's not the gospel. Gospel. Ooh, <laughs> I forget uh, what the what the what the ooh, the evangelion, the good news. It's 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 beautiful because here, here, it's not about. Well, do your good deeds outweigh your bad? No, it's just your bad deeds are forgotten. It's gone. Somebody dance a jig. Is there an actual dance called the jig? Yeah, sure there is. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Remember I told you David had an understanding of this? He did because... In one of the Psalms, I forgot to write down which one it was, David says, Blessed are those who law, whose laws deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That is massive. Yes, blessed is the one. I love this. David saw justification by faith 3,000 years before Christ. <laughs> he saw that this was the way God was going to work. By faith, his lawless deeds have been forgiven, his sins have been covered, and the Lord will not take his sins into account. This is unbelievable, but it's true. It's the good news. Verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised? Or on the uncircumcised also. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Verse 10. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was while he was uncircumcised. He was still a Gentile when God credited his faith to him as righteousness. He was not yet a Hebrew. but while uncircumcised. So in Abraham, Jews and Greeks are made one. Jews and Gentiles are made one. Here is a man who is not yet circumcised. He's not yet entered the Hebrew covenant with God. Okay, not a Jew because there were no Jews yet. He would be the first, but he was not yet. God credited to him his righteousness. And then a couple days later, they go through the covenant ceremony where he where he gets circumcised and then he circumcises his kids and from that point forward that becomes an outward sign of the covenant <coughs> that they've made with God is circumcision. Okay? He was not saved by circumcision, not by his works. 
Okay? Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Yeah. Honest question. Yeah. Um, uh, how did they do it? Is it just a knife? Like. Yep. Okay. Yep. Like no something. Any, put them out. They, they didn't have to, anything like that. They just had to go for it. Yeah. Punch them in the face really hard. Uh, hold still. I think they had people hold them down and everything. Probably. Yeah. You yeah. hold his arms. I'll hold his legs. You hold his. <laughs> yeah now god saw that that was not going to be cool so he said from now on do it on the eighth day after they're born because grown-ups being circumcised is a lot worse than like a little kid you know yeah. you know so yeah it's like I'm not going to share just yet, but I'm really excited because you're coming up to verse 17, which makes me super happy because I was praying last night the Lord spoke that verse to me. It's a great verse. We'll be there in a minute. So he received the sign of circumcision. Why? What was that signifying? It was a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. So God was saying, this that I've just done in you, this righteousness I've just gifted to you, this is this act... Okay, which is it that you might say, why did God have him do that? Okay, because it was deeply personal and intimate and because it it was a symbol of the flesh being cut away. Okay, we're being given back to our spiritual selves. Okay, that's what it's about. Now, there is something you need to know. There is something called female circumcision was never practiced in, in the Bible ever. No. Makes it impossible for a woman to have an orgasm. So they just have kids. So it's nothing. It's the man's it's, it's, it's practiced in certain countries, but it's literally just so the man can have sex and have pleasure from it. And, it, she's and a woman never does. So That's so chased. rude. It's incredibly terrible. It's, you're right. It's practiced mostly. Mostly, it's an Islamic practice. There are other religions that do it as well, but it's mostly an Islamic practice. The idea is that you see, okay, in in the Islamic world, they believe that women are much weaker when it comes to temptation. This eliminates the sexual temptation. There's no way you're going to want to have sex after that. Because it's usually painful for them for the rest of their lives. Are they allowed to say no to their husband? No. No. That makes me mad. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah. This is not how God wanted it. And I'll be, I'll be even more honest. Male circumcision actually enhances sex in many ways for guys. So... It's a sick and twisted and disgusting yeah. thing. Some people would say that it's circumcision. I, I, I don't. You need to know that that's not, it's not in Scripture for women to be circumcised ever. So you need to just understand that. Okay. So, God did this in Abraham. Circumcision was a sign of what had already happened inside of him. God changed him first. And the works were simply a seal of the righteousness he had received as a gift. It was just, it was, 
It was the signature on the contract. Okay. God did this in Abraham before he made the Hebrew covenant so that the way could be made for both the children of Abraham and any other who would have faith in God to save them in the future. Okay, God accredited his righteousness to Abraham before he was a Jew so that it was not only for the Jews, it was for everyone who would believe. Are you with me? Okay. Verse 13. For the promised Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world. Now that's a pretty amazing statement. Heir of that Abraham was given a promise that he would be the heir of the world. Not heir like heir, but heir H E I R. He will uh, inherit the I was world really from God. For a second, he's an heir. I didn't know which no, context. No, he is. He receive. He is the heir of God. And we have been called co-heirs with Christ. This is just a carrier forward of what God promised to Abraham. Was not through the law. That promise was not given to him through the law. The law did not exist. There had been no law at this point. The Ten Commandments didn't exist yet. The rest of the Hebraic covenant didn't exist yet. It did not come to him through the law. It came through righteousness but of faith. Righteousness that came from faith is where his relationship with God began. And the promise of God that he would inherit the earth came from his faith. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. In other words, if the only way to get to this promise is by obeying the law, then we're all screwed because no one has ever been able to do it. For the law brings about wrath, but there is no. But where there is no law, there is no violation. It is either the law or faith. You can't intermix them. You can't say, well, faith gets me started, but the law takes me the rest of the way. No! Go read the book of Galatians. Because that's exactly what they were doing. They had believed the gospel when Paul came and preached it to them the first time received salvation, been filled with the Holy Spirit, started walking after Christ, and then some of these other guys came, and they were like, well, you know you have to be a Jew to be a Christian, don't you? And they were like, what? We do? And he was like, yeah, you do. You got to be a Jew to be a Christian, so all you guys got to get circumcised, and you got to stop eating ham, and you got to, you know, I'm serious. That's exactly what they were doing. And so the people in the Galatian church started doing that. Paul heard about it, and he wrote the book of Galatians to tell them, no, stop. Don't listen to those idiots. He actually says, I think it's in the book of Galatians where he says that he wishes those that were walking, going around circumcising Christians in order to save them. He said, I wish they would just go the whole way and cut everything off of themselves. Not. You know, oh, I was like, wow. He was just saying they're ruining your salvation because they're taking you back to works and works will not save you, period. Verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith. Listen to this. This is so good. It is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It is Abraham's faith that we step into and get to call ourselves sons and daughters of Abraham. Have you ever sang the song? song? 
Father Abraham and many sons. Okay. Were you ever confused by that song as a kid? I was totally confused by that song. Because I'm like, I, my dad's name is Ron. <laughs> Here I am, like a three-year-old, Father Abraham. This song is fun, but it makes no sense, right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm not one of them. What? Explain that to me. My, and my Sunday school teachers never explained it to me. They never said, this is how we're sons and daughters of Abraham, which is, I think, why the song was written, so that they, we could come to understand how we were sons and daughters of Abraham. But I was never, to my knowledge, maybe they did and I just wasn't listening. <laughs> but to my knowledge, nobody ever told me this is why you're sons and daughters of Abraham, because you share the faith that he had and you receive the promise that he received through the faith that he had. I become a son of Abraham, who is my father in the faith. You see? And here's the beautiful part. Ladies, you're the sons of Abraham also. That song used to make me mad. Because I'd be like, no, I'm not a son. <laughs> father so Abraham mad. had many sons and daughters. Many sons and daughters had father Abraham. <laughs> That's the modern version. Another modern version of Father Abraham had many kids. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's way better. Okay, that's okay. There's this. There, there's, there's. He said had many kids, but on a specific gender. <laughs> there was this. Uh, have you ever been in a service and they're leading people in the prayer to receive Christ, and they say. Something about being a son or daughter of God in the prayer, and everybody repeats, son or daughter. Does that bug you? That bugs me. Make your own. You know, that's why, so, which I don't really like repeat after me prayers. I don't think, I don't like them. I don't like them. I usually tell people, pray something like this, but make it in your own words. And I just kind of give them just really brief and say, now you pray. Because I don't repeat after me prayers. Usually, you're just parroting, and you don't actually know what's being said. And I have a problem with that. But anyway, I still do it sometimes. And when I do, I say, your child, not your son or daughter. Because then everyone's like, make me your son or daughter. <laughs> no. <laughs> you're either one or the other. Not both. And it's not up for, you know, grabs. You don't get to, you know what? Now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to be a girl instead. No, no, no. It, it comes from Pastor Ron's prayer that he prayed. It's okay. Do they have a bathroom for me? Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> no. Hey, if I talk about orgasm at one point in the podcast, I think I can talk about the Target bathrooms um, where I was making shortcakes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> pooping. I was pooping. Um, Owen <laughs> 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 Rogers, we love you. Verse 17 As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. You ain't got no righteousness. You don't. 
So God, who gives life to the dead, you're spiritually dead. God, who gives life to the dead, gives life to your spirit and gives you righteousness, which does not exist. He just calls it into being over you. Now, he could not and would not do that without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we'll get there in the next couple chapters. But we have to understand that we receive this thing by faith. Is there anything you wanted to add? I mean, just last night, I was like kind of stressing about some stuff. I have a lot of things that are kind of building up. And the Lord started speaking to me verses like, do not worry. And then like, um, uh, the Lord takes care of like the birds and all that stuff that one in Matthew. And then he was like, he speaks things into existence as though they are. Or things that are not existent as though they are. And I'm like, it's amazing. Because like he called me here knowing I'd have need. But he also has that need met. Even though I don't see it yet. He knows. That's amazing. He's already working. Now this is this was this was also the verse that I like just lost it in because here's this promise that God gave him a father of many nations I will make you a father of many nations and he was made a father of many nations physically because he had uh both Isaac and Ishmael who both became great nations and from Isaac other nations came, not just Israel, because Moab came from Isaac as well. Are you, it's true. And then, so because of, uh, what's his name? Esau. Esau became a nation, and so did Jacob. Okay, so... There were actual, literal, physical nations that came from Abraham's physical body. But God said many nations. And when God said that, God was looking forward to the spiritual reality of it as well. And the Lord said to me, this promise was kept. And and we can see at the end of time in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Do you understand that every tribe and every nation, the promise that God made, you will be a father of many nations. This is where it's kept. The true fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is when men from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be standing before the throne of God at the end of days, saved by the blood of Jesus, a son of Abraham, and connecting to the righteousness that was bought for them by Jesus' cross through the faith which Abraham had first. And they will stand and say, we are one of the sons of Abraham, a father of many nations indeed. Is this not amazing to you that at the end of time, we're all going to look at daddy Abraham and be like, where are your kids? Can you imagine what he's going to be like? He's going, God, I had no idea. And it's in this moment that the truth of so shall your offspring be as he's looking at the billions of stars in the galaxies. So shall your offspring be. This is where it comes true. Because if we look out at the sea of saved people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and every generation, and realize God used me to do this. 
Think about it. This is what comes of friendship with God. What's going to come out of your friendship with God? (laughs) God, give us faith. Verse 18. And hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, who was ninety. God was speaking this to Abraham before Sarah had conceived. She's ninety years old. I don't know how much you know about female anatomy, but that is way beyond menopause, my friends. And this also was not the age of Viagra, okay? (laughs) So, just even the physical act that would lead, even the physical act that would lead to a son was pretty much a miracle at this point. Okay? So, <laughs> the fact that they didn't die. <laughs> 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 oh my god! Work. Uh, wow. So many miracles in this one. What can I what say, Sarah? God said we're gonna have a kid, we so we try. gotta do this. Sorry. <laughs> we gotta just try. We're filming. Oh my God. Abe, you dirty old man. Hey, we just got to be real here, all right? He believed, he believed what God had said. He's looking at his own body, knowing, you know, I'm not as fit as I used to be. And he's, th- and he's thinking of his wife, who's 90 years old, still beautiful, but 90. Okay, and he's like, this is not possible in the human terms. There's not, it is not a possibility. Medically, it's not possible. Scientifically, it's not possible. And yet, God says, I'm going to do it. And he believed it. I'm going to do it so you can do it. (laughs) Number 20, verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. doesn't matter that I think it's impossible. God can do this. God can, God will. Uh, he didn't waver in unbelief. How many times do we do that? God makes a promise to us and we're like, we're like, Okay, there was a time when I, you know, in that worship service, this seemed possible. But today, in, this, in the cold light of day, I don't know that that's going to happen. That's that's way out of that's that's out in left field, you know. So you begin to soften up your expectations because you don't want to be disappointed. Don't we do that? We hear something that God says, then we go, "Well, maybe He just meant that it was going to be figuratively like that, not literally like that." Abraham didn't do that. He said, God said I would have a son, and I will have a son by Sarah. 
verse 21, and being fully assured that what God has promised, he was able to perform. God promised me he can, he will. He trusted in the character and the nature of God. If God said he would do it, then he can and he will. There was a preacher who has a son named Joel Osteen. But his dad, Joel still does this, I believe. But his dad used to start every sermon and say, pick up your Bible and repeat after me. This is my Bible. I am who it says that I am. I can do what it says I can do. That was true. No matter what you think about Joel Osteen now, that's still true about God's word. I am who this book says that I am. I can do what this book says I can do. Period. God, what God says he will do, he will do. This is the kind of person God can use to change the world. Do you, have you ever heard of William Carey? William Carey was a man <clears throat> a while back, several hundred years ago. And he believed that God wanted him to go where the gospel had not been heard and preach the gospel. Everybody around him said, no, that's stupid. Everybody around him said, why would you do that? If God wanted to take the gospel there, he would take it there. What? I'm dead serious. Everybody around him said, no, what, what do you mean go to another place? And, you know, God, it'll happen. If God wants it to happen, it'll happen. William Carey said, no, it's not going to happen unless we go, like Jesus told us to do, into all the earth and take the gospel to every creature. Now, at the time, that was a novel idea. People weren't doing that. Churches weren't doing that. Hadn't been doing it for hundreds of years. They weren't taking the gospel other places. Okay? There, had been, there was one group of people called the Moravians. Anybody ever heard of them? Okay, the Moravians were this, this group of people who said, we're going to pray day and night. And they began to pray day and night. And as they did that, God began to put burdens on them for nations. So they would go. They would leave. Now, travel wasn't what it is now by any stretch. So they would leave and, and fully expect to never come back. And they would go to those nations. There were Moravians who would sell themselves into slavery so that they could preach to the slaves. Wow. Okay? That's what happens when you pray day and night. All of a sudden, God's agenda becomes your agenda. All of a sudden, what God cares about becomes what you care about. William Carey had heard about the Moravians, and God began to speak to him and say, I want you to go to India, William, because there's no gospel message for me there. And William said, I'm going to go. And he tried to raise money at his church and among his people, and they all said, you're crazy. You're going to get killed. And William Carey moved to India. His wife and a couple of his kids died from diseases there. He ministered for years and years before he ever had one convert. But he began a movement. At the end of his life, he had translated the Bible into all of the major Indian dialects. 
And he had a small group of believers, like two or 300 believers that he had converted there. But the real impact of his life was the generations of people after him that said, that's what God wants us to do. And William Carey had a phrase that he used to say to people all the time. And it was this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. That was his life. That was the ruling passion of his life. I expect God to do great things as I attempt to do them for him. It's only when we step out in faith and do an attempt to the impossible that God can actually do the impossible. If we're sitting on our butts going, well, you know, God's going to eventually do something. Nothing is going to happen. We have to dream big dreams. We have to believe that our God is the God of the impossible. He wants to do things that we have never seen before. And we step out of faith and attempt them. And you know what? There's going to be lots of times we're going to fall flat on our face. Okay, William Carey went something like 30 years before even one person in India got saved. I don't remember exactly what the number is, but it's like that. It's like a long, long, long time. Can you imagine what it would be like to live on the mission field? Your family is dying. And there's nobody being converted to Christianity? What exactly? I don't know how he did it. I would have run home with my tail between my legs and said, never mind. I was wrong. But he didn't. Because he didn't, the world's being evangelized right now. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. We have to live in that place. Verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Not now, for his sake. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also. To whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who, has, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. God did this in Abraham, and he's still doing it today because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we have to live in this place where we believe that God will do what he said he was going to do. You want to do great things for God? Go do them. Believe that God will meet us. Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of the things that you understand. Get out of the things that you know how to do. And go out and begin to do things that other people look at and shake their head and say, you're crazy. That's how we do great things for God. And that's the end of Romans chapter 4. I think it was a great thing for God that we actually got through an entire chapter of Romans. Class. I know, I'm blown away right now. You might actually get to prayer on time. But you know, pastor, yeah, I guess. <laughs> They're not going to be ready. <laughs> any questions, any comments? Alrighty. Father, I pray over all of us right now. I ask you 
Teach us to be daring. Teach us to look into your heart and to see the invisible and to see the impossible and to say yes to what it is that you want to do that we never would have thought of, that we never would have believed possible, that we never would have reached for. I pray that we would look to the stars and believe that what you want to do is bigger than us. It's bigger than our lives. It's bigger than this moment. It's bigger than our region. It's bigger than anything we know. And it extends to every generation after us. I ask this in Jesus' name.